0: to episode 51 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey and I'm joined as always by my co-host Scott Shelton. Scott, today we'll be taking a midsummer breather from the big b- budget blockbusters of the summer to talk about a buzzy indie from across the pond called Wild Rose. But before we get to that, Scott, how are you doing?
1: I thought you were about to mess with me saying you're taking a midsummer breather since I uh, watched a midsummer yesterday. <laughs> and uh, like any probably anyone who sees that movie, you need a little bit of a breather after you see it. I was about but, to say,
0: you definitely need a breather <laughs> after that. Yeah.
1: Exactly, yeah. But, you know, I really thoroughly enjoyed that movie. Can't wait to talk about it on our next month's review roundup after you did talk about it in uh, our most recent edition. But it's nice. It's a perfect weekend. And, for, you know, did, did just watch some tennis this morning. So I feel like I'm getting a holistic uh, media content experience, watching movies, watching sports, getting to be outside for a little bit,
0: sometimes doing a little bit of both. Uh, it's It's a good time media media content experience wow that's going to be like the next tag tagline for the next streaming service i feel like
1: i mean i feel like that's pretty much what disney is trying to go for with all of their different platforms between a
0: holistic <laughs> media content experience
1: hey they have espn abc their own franchise stuff disney plus hulu they've got a full media content experience over there so
0: they do a uh a big mce for sure um <laughs> All right, Scott. Well, without further ado, let's turn our attention uh, to a movie that, while set quite a ways away from us, uh, is about a topic that hits fairly close to home for us Tennesseans, country music. In Wild Rose, the new film from director Tom Harper, Jessie Buckley plays a Scottish woman with an all-too-perfect name of Rose Lynn Harlan. As the film opens, Roselynn has just gotten out of jail and returned to her hometown of Glasgow, where her mother, played by Julie Walters, has been caring for Roselynn's two young children. Winona and Lyle. Despite her setback in the clink, Rosalind still has her sights set on fulfilling her lifelong dream of moving to Nashville to become a country singer. And it's clear that Rosalind has the voice to make it as a singer, but without the resources to truly pursue her goal, she is forced to take a job cleaning the house of Susanna, a posh housewife played by Sophie Okonedo, who takes a liking to the hard scrabble Rosalind and vows to aid her quest for a country music career. Pulled in opposite directions by her family and her musical aspirations, Rosalind is soon forced to confront what it is that means the most to her in life and come to terms with the person that she truly wants to be. Scott Wildrose has been a sleeper indie hit this year and is even generating some Oscar buzz for Jesse Buckley's lead performance. Did this movie hit you like Three Chords and the Truth, or is it the cinematic equivalent of a Warm Beer and a Luke Bryan album? This is much
1: closer to Three Chords and the Truth for sure. I think that this movie is... A really beautiful film. Obviously, it's almost inevitable to talk about comparisons between this. It's been like A Star is Born, which I immediately fell into on Twitter after I saw this movie. Uh, but I, I think it's an apt comparison. And, and yet these movies are still telling very different messages. One of the things that I loved most about this movie that I thought was missing a little bit from A Star is Born is that this felt like a lot more realistic tale of what someone who really wants to become a star has to go through and deal with and ultimately uh, come to a conclusion about. And I think that that central theme for this movie, and it explores it so well and so beautifully, is what does it really mean to be a star, to be successful, or to be famous, however you want to describe that. And I think that throughout this movie, uh, Jesse Buckley's Rosalind is wrestling with that very notion. And I think that one of the beautiful parts of the story is that it ultimately, I mean, ultimately it leaves it open to your conclusion, but it comes down uh, very comfortably on the side of you have to define what is success, what is fame, what is stardom for yourself. And sometimes achieving that has to be within these limitations that the movie sets up. And you talk about her, uh, you know, having a 12 month prison sentence uh, right at the start of the film, she's getting, she's getting, getting out of that. She has two kids, you know, that's not the recipe for becoming a star. If you look at something like a star is born. And I think that, that is something that is wrestled without the whole movie. And Jessie Buckley is the center of that. And I think she's absolutely amazing in this film. I've never I've never seen her in anything before. I can't wait to watch Chernobyl. It's still near the top of my to-watch list. I know she's in that as well. But really, I mean, this is a, a star-making performance. And you know whether or not the buzz can last all the way into Oscar season and award season generally for her, I think that's a big question mark. I'd say she's definitely up there on the list of uh, movies for the first half of the year. But all things considered, it's probably been a fairly weak first half of the year. You know, not that that's not standard for Oscar-worthy performances and things like that, but, you know, you can probably count easily on one hand people or women who would be up for the best actress uh, in at the Oscars. And I think that Jesse Buckley, Buckley has to be one of them. Julie Walters, I also think, does a really good job. There were points in this movie where I thought it really could fall into being a really derivative story of this, you know, ex, ex-mom is... is a disappointing person and is like basically sacrificing the people that she's responsible for in order to like live a life that she thinks is cool but i think it goes so much deeper and so much further than that asking a lot of hard questions and coming up with some answers that you know you could feel either way about i think and that's what makes a for a great movie and a great compelling story and for me i found this movie in almost all aspects to be extremely
0: compelling and yeah, Scott. I have to say, there's one scene in this movie that I do not like, uh, but other than that, I think it's pretty a pretty flawless film from beginning to end. And I think that one of the many things that I admire about it is that it really gets country music right. Um, and I think, you know, you you can trust me in saying that. Uh, like I said, we're we're Tennesseeans, so uh, if there's people who know about country music, it's us. And but I mean, in, in several ways, I mean, of course, it wears its musical influences. Very heavily on its sleeve, like at the beginning of the movie when Rosalind gets out of jail she goes to her boyfriend's house and is singing a Patsy Klein song to him. Later we see Casey Musgraves make a cameo uh, when she uh, in, a, in a club that Rosalind goes into um, she sings a Chris Stapleton song at one point so the you know the, they choose their influences wisely as if to say, look guys we you know don't don't be worried we know what good country." And so I appreciate that on a very base level, but also like the story of this movie, right, is it's basically a country song in and of itself. You know, they make a big deal about the uh, oft-repeated saying that country music is three chords and the truth, Uh, but I think that the way that they integrate that theme into the story of this film works really well because, of course, you know, she's, here's Rosalind who is, diving into this genre that is all about three chords and the truth. But at the same time in her own life, she's avoiding the truth in her relationship with, uh, Sophie Okonedo's character by, of course, not letting her know that she's an ex-con and that she, uh, has kids and all of this stuff. And so there's a nice juxtaposition there. And so, yeah, I think that the movie is really authentic to what good country music is about and the struggles that it takes to become a an artist and you know if you look at the backgrounds of a lot of great country artists like a lot of them come from backgrounds much like the one that Rosalind had in this movie and I think you're right when you said this movie feels more realistic than a star is born I think that for me one of the things that I enjoyed a lot was that you know in a star is born right like Lady Gaga does a terrific job obviously but The whole time, there's not really very much suspense about whether she's going to make it as a star, right? The whole time, you are still are cognizant of the uh, fact that you're watching Lady Gaga. And it's like, well, she has this voice. You know, she looks good. It's only a matter of time before uh, she becomes a star. But here, I think there is genuine suspense as to whether Rosalind is going to become a star or not, just because of her background. Because she lives in Scotland, right, where country music is... Basically not a thing uh, outside of, you know, this one little one um, Grand Ole Opry themed club that she sings at. You know, she even says at one point that uh, to to Sophie Okaneda's character that nobody in Glasgow knows anything about country music. And so I think, you know, there are a lot of things working against Rosalind, which create, you know, some some very good dramatic tension all the way throughout this movie about whether she's going to make it. And, you know, what are the consequences going to be if she does make it? Because, of course she still has a family to contend with. And I think I was a little bit concerned for some of the movie about how they were going to pull off the balance of these two ideas um, of, of, you know, pursuing your dreams, but also uh, being responsible for the family that you have and the home that you have. But I think that they pull things off. They stick the landing in a really beautiful way. And, you know, because this movie is so realistic, I think, and, and feels so authentic and lived in, I think that the final scene of the movie, which It is a little bit uh, into, uh, dives a little bit into the fantasy realm a little bit. You have to suspend your disbelief, I think, a little bit. But I think because, again, because the movie is so authentic for the right time, it really earns the emotional payoff in that final scene. Uh, And it's just a wonderful payoff and a wonderful song to cap things off. Really, the music throughout is outstanding. It's a mix of covers uh, and original songs. And I think, like Lady Gaga, Jesse Buckley absolutely has one of those voices that Uh, makes you sit up straight uh, as soon as she opens her mouth Um, so yeah Scott you know this this is a movie that uh, on paper looked like something that I was going to love and uh, they really followed through I think it you know it's been three years since uh, we've got the last John Carney movie but I think this really uh, filled the gap uh, until we get John Carney's next movie because it it really feels like it could have been directed by John Carney as well so this is absolutely one of my favorites of the year
1: yeah, no, and you talk about that last scene getting the emotional payoff. I, you know, I didn't ever really think about whether or not it was realistic that the last scene could happen, but I felt like it, it followed through and finish and finished off you know, the central theme of Rosalind's journey to success or def- or essentially achieving what she would have, whatever she would define as success. But by the end of the movie, that like having that last scene, even if it doesn't maybe doesn't feel as realistic and authentic as the struggle that she goes through for the rest of the movie. I did still tear up in the final scene, seeing that happen. And this was a movie where about halfway through, you know, it was almost getting to the point of rolling my eyes after, you know, bad decision after bad decision. But then there was something that changed and that um, felt really visceral and real. And, and then that final scene, I think capped it off so well to the point that, you know, I think it it earned the, the, the tears that it got me to shed.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's a very powerful scene. And like I said, that song Glasgow, which is very much the central song of the movie, um, you know, is a song that I was familiar with. i had been listening to the soundtrack for a while before I saw this movie. Um, and, you know, when I first saw the performance of the song that Jesse Buckley had on the Colbert, uh, the Tonight Show, um, I was like, oh, wow, this is a really great song. But I think it takes it to a whole nother level in this movie, seeing uh, her performing this song in the context of the scene and listening to the lyrics in the context of the scene Uh, really add up to something that really is one of the most powerful scenes of the year.
1: Yeah, I agree. And before we do move on to more specifics, just talk a high level about a couple other things really quickly. You know, you, you do mention that Jesse Buckley has the voice that makes you sit up straight. I do think that that because I compared it favorably to a star is born already, I do want to say that I, I still think a star is born probably is better than this movie for me overall. Like I think that the, actual like the musical experience combined with the cinematography of, of that particular film is just so amazing and, and granted it's doing something different especially with that cinematography but it was so sh- that movie in, in particular amplified I think everything amazing about all the music uh in its which by itself you know standing alone is is amazing and and within its own right well worth, you know well worth going to a movie to see and I think this movie against a very high bar just fell a little bit short to that uh, that being said, I still think, like I said, this movie is doing something slightly different. Uh, maybe I didn't enjoy the music holistically as much as I did for a star is born, but still high bar. And I really did like it. Um, you know, from start to finish.
0: Yeah. I th- I think it is doing something different. Maybe that's why I like it a little bit more just because y- you definitely feel a lot differently coming out of this movie than you do coming out of a star is born. And I guess I enjoyed the feeling that I had, uh, after this movie, a little bit more than I did after Star is Born, which is probably understandable.
1: Yeah, I mean, spoilers, are up on A Star is Born, right? Like, <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to feel good walking out after seeing someone nope. commit suicide and then Lady Gaga cry and yeah. sing a, a ballad about it. So
0: it, this might be a spoiler, but nobody hangs themselves with a belt in Wild Rose. So there is that uh, going for you. know,
1: I'll even go further for us. No one hangs in No one gets hung at
0: all in this movie with any object. Yeah. It's true, Um, a nice twist for sure. But um, okay, Scott, we've mentioned uh, the the star of this movie, Jesse Buckley, many times uh, so far in our review. Um, You know, she has uh, been in a prominent role a little bit recently uh, with her work on Chernobyl, as you mentioned. But this is really the first starring film role that she had. Um, And you know, I imagine we feel very strongly about this performance. But could you say a little bit more about what it is that makes it so great?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that. I mean, first and foremost, and I know this isn't just talking about Jesse Buckley, but there's just so much for her to like to do with this character, right? Like we've we've talked, I think, many times over the last couple months, where not necessarily major roles, but some of the minor roles, like you're just not given much to do. There's not much, you know, room for you to really like flex your acting muscles with with within a limited like one or two dimensional character. And I think Rosalind is anything but a one or two dimensional character, and so. So, you know, Nicole Taylor, you know, crafting a a script for, you know, for this character, for Rose Lynn and Tom Harper directing it, like just really let Jesse Buckley make, it feels like it let her make the role her own and she absolutely rocks it. I mean, even from the opening scene, I think the performance that you get just with her like leaving the jail is one where you immediately understand and are conveyed to like exactly who this character is and how much of a, you know, fighting spirit that, Jesse Buckley's Rosalind is going to be throughout the film, and I think that she's able to carry that through, uh, you know, from scene to scene, from context to context, and then moderate that within like what situation that she's in. That made a lot of sense for it to be just like a perfect, almost a perfect acting performance. I'd say. I mean, you get like the full swings from like you know her leaving the jail and going to like the grand, the Grand Ole Opry, the Glasgow Grand Ole Opry, whatever it's called. I can't remember what it's called. Then, like, you see her interacting with her mother and her kids and then interacting with her, like, I don't know, boyfriend, hookup, whatever you want to call him. He's not that – I thought he was going to be a major character from, yeah, from the beginning of the film, and then he, was, he wasn't at all. Uh, and so I just think that she has to carry this movie. And, you know, as great as Julie Walters is in terms of a, you know, career, you know, actress in this – in Hollywood – She's a great supporting role in this in this film, but I think this film lives and dies by Jesse Buckley. And the fact that she's able to deliver those emotionally resonant moments throughout the film, whether it's, you know, her interactions, like I said, with her kids and con- like continuing to have to make a decision around whether or not to disappoint her children uh, or not go after her dream. And you see it in that context, you see it in the context where she's trying to live this, you know, second life with Sophie Alcaneto's Susanna and that whole household. And not necessarily trying to live a double life at first, but then when she realized that Susanna can actually help her maybe achieve her goal and her of, for her musical career, and then realizing she's like, all right, I can't risk, you know, the truth about me impeding where I want to be, that whole theme of like and being successful within the realm like within the, you know, limits and abilities of who you are is just something that she explores so well. And you see that frustration with her circumstances throughout the whole film, and I think that, you know, she's an explosive personality in this film, and I don't know what Jesse Buckley is like in, like in real life, but she portrays that so convincingly, like she's a combustible figure, right? Like, you you know, you she knows always in the back of her mind she is an ex-convict and she has two kids, and she can't become the person she wants to be or that soci- or that she thinks society, like, would label her to be successful, uh, you know, having to get to Nashville, for example, becoming, like, a world-famous country music star, you know, she knows that she can do that within the life that she's crafted for herself. And that frustration is so palpable through her performance uh, and, and it evolves so well over the course of the film. We won't get into spoilers yet that, again, I just think it's one of the best performances of the year so far.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I talked about how I think there's that suspense about whether she's going to make it or not. And I think a lot of that does come from her performance because, you know, she's making bad decisions. She can't shake the person who she is, no matter, uh, you know how much she might want to distance herself from certain elements uh of her of herself and of her personality but i think that personality is what makes the character so unique um and the fact that you know she is a little bit rough around the edges and uh she doesn't dress like a pop star and she uh you know ha- is swears a lot and uh drinks a lot and so you know she she is she's rough around the edges she definitely is a, it's a there's definitely a culture clash when she is in the house of Sophie okena's character there's that Really nice scene of her going around the house, admiring the house when uh, when Susanna leaves one day and drinking out of the liquor cabinet and stuff, which uh, I think tells you a lot. And that, you know, that's another strong point of the performance. I think she, she does so much in the little things of her performance to tell you about uh, her character, whether it's, you know, putting the the cowboy boots on over her uh house arrest anklet right like that tells you so much just that image right there and later on that that scene with her and Susanna where she first goes to Susanna and talks about her her dream of being a country music singer and how you know she needs certain amount of money uh to get to um Nashville and Susanna's like well you know, I, I can't help you with the money, although I'm sure that's not what you're asking. And she's like, "Yes, it was." Uh, and I think that I I love that line, and it, it again, it's just a small line that tells you a lot about her character. I think you know the the bluntness of, of her character is is something that is both a blessing and a curse. Um, and I think, and you know, the other another thing she does really right is, of course, in the musical performances, uh, not just her voice, but uh, her her whole performance and the fact that. Um, she really comes alive in these uh, musical scenes when she's performing. No, no matter what's going on in, uh, you know, her life at the time, the the performances and the music are a, a total escape from her. Whether it's you know when she's at the Grand Ole Opry singing, or later on when she's in an auditorium, I won't say more than that. Singing, you know, she she you you see how much music means to her in these scenes, and I think that that's really important because you know you have to care about. I, you know, I think you're to some extent you're predisposed to care about her family and her being a good mother to her kids, which she really hadn't been up and up until this point. But I think you have to in order to make the movie work, there has to be that balance there of you also caring about her filling her dream of becoming a singer. Um, and I think that Jesse Buckley absolutely sells that um, to the point where you really are torn, uh, much as she in the film herself is torn about. Uh, What is the correct path for her to take? And so uh, I can't say enough good words about the work that she does here.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's what I find so compelling about this movie, because there's a portion of it that sets, you know, sets her up to be the villain almost. Right. Like to be this person who just, you know, perpetually disappoints everyone around her. I mean, literally, literally everyone. Right, like her mom, her kids, her friends—you yeah. know, the people that she works with, uh, the people she works for—like it, it sets her up to disappoint literally everyone. And yet, somehow, you know, over the course of this film, it creeps in that you, you know, you do care about this person, and, and you really see the genuine struggle she's going through. I just think it, one of the things that I like so much is that it's not black and white. Right? Again, that sounds super basic, but it would it would be really easy to go, full, you know, fully one direction or the other with this character, right? And Instead, what you get is you get this person who has, like, essentially just goes through these swings and, you know, fits of inspiration, both for her music career, but also for her kids. Predominantly, yes, it does probably usually end up being her musical career, but there are these moments where you see this genuinely, um, like, wonderful mother and the potential that she has for that. And then there are the moments where, are you know, just excruciating, excruciatingly disappointing moments for those same people.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think... Yeah, her chemistry with everyone else is great. In particular, I found a lot of the scenes with her and the kids to be really touching. Those were some of the moments that got to me the most. The good moments uh, of when, she, like like you said, when she, when you see that she really could, can't, could be a great mom or also the bad moments, especially after, you know, she's had a good streak with her kids or something, or, you know, they're really starting to warm to her. And then all of a sudden she has to um, leave them in order to, go play a gig or go to the BBC radio. I think those were some of the moments that, that got to me for sure. It's so interesting. Cause it's, it's almost like the portrayal
1: of an addict. Like if you replaced all mm-hmm. like music in this movie with just alcohol or drugs, it like, it wouldn't feel out of place because it's like, you talk about this like streak of good, but like, I say good behavior, but the streak of being a good mother of being a responsible mother of making, you know, her mother proud and, you know, you know, essentially bettering her relationship with her kids, which is strained. I mean, significantly for when she first gets out of jail. You see that almost immediately in, what you, in what's shown on screen. But then, you know, you get this tempta- this temptation of music where, you know, you get Susanna, to, you know, offering her, and this is a mild spoiler, but basically offering her the opportunity to earn, earn some money to help her toward her career. And that just sends her into a spiral of bad, of bad, irresponsible parenting uh, for you know making that sacrifice for the potential of a music career, and it's in it and it sucks. It really hurts to watch those moments, and that's because of how invested you are in in her as as a mother. But then you also get that you you would almost feel the, the I mean you feel the same way like kind of later on in the movie when she kind of declines a situation that could further her career, and uh, you're like, oh well, she's kind of giving up a, a little bit on that on that dream a little bit. And so you you feel it both ways. And and you not not just through the what's happening in the film, but also through Jesse Buckley. And and I think that's what makes it so great.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, All right, Scott, Well, let's talk about a couple of the supporting cast. Now, it's not a huge supporting cast in terms of the people who play major roles in the movie. But I guess the the other major role is Julie Walters, who plays Marion, Jesse Buckley, Rosalind's mother, um, who has, of course, has been caring for the kids while Rosalind has been in jail. And uh, has a lot of strong opinions about you know the the choices that Rosalind has been making and needs to make going forward um, to provide for her family. Scott, what did you think of uh, the the performance of the veteran Julie Walters here?
1: I think that Julie Walters is kind of the perfect person to play this role. Like again, I don't think this is going to be a role that she's remembered for, and I doubt there will be any Oscars buzz, you know, in, in you know half a month and half a year's time. That being said, I, I think that she complements. Jesse Buckley's Rosalind so well, you know, you have this kind of austere, you know, mother figure who is, you know, just disappointed in her child who makes irresponsible decision after irresponsible decision. But you still, like, you still see the love that she has for her daughter. You see that she, you know, yes, she has her own opinions on what Jesse Buckley's character's priorities should be, right? Like, she has an like, it should be family first and then it should be your career. It should never be your career first. And you see that and and you see her you know, magnetic pull of, 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 that character on Rosalind towards her family. And at some moments she's successful and others. She's not. And I think that it, again, it just feels like a really authentic uh, mother, a really authentic character when it could have very easily been entirely, you know, one way it could have been entirely like, Oh, every time you ever try to do something with your career, I'm disappointed in you. And the only way to make me happy is to be a good mother. And I think that it's, it, it is slightly more nuanced than that, but not, so nuanced that it then feels weird that her mother is like too encouraging of her to be an irresponsible parent, uh, and so in that sense, I think that there's the right balance in terms of the character development from a script perspective, but then also Julie Walters playing playing that so authentically with the, with the mother that
0: she creates through her acting. Yeah, I think that you know we've talked about how a lot of the movie is about Rose Lynn trying to find that balance between her family, but also her you know pursuing her dreams and. I think what's so interesting about this role is that uh, Marion is kind of doing the same thing, right? Um, at the start of the movie, they're clearly on very opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, Marian is like, no, forget about the, your dreams. Like you got to stay here and care for your family. You haven't done that. Um, you know, the only thing that pursuing this country music career has ever gotten you is thrown in jail. And of course, Rosalind feels the opposite and she wants to dive into the career fully. And I think the movie, to some extent, well, of course, Rosalind is the protagonist. It's kind of about both these characters finding their way to that middle ground to where Jesse Buckley can can have the career that she wants, but also care for her family. But also for Julie Walters, that she can encourage her daughter to pursue her dreams like any good parent should, you know, and, and that that uh, that Rosalind can still pursue that dream while um, fulfilling her role as a mother to these children. and. Um, you know, her, her maternal instinct obviously is kicking in. But, um, I, you know, I, watching her sort of arc over the course of this movie and coming to terms in the end with the fact that, you know, her daughter is different from her. Right. And uh, it's it's not right to try and force her daughter into this the exact life that maybe she wants her to have or that she herself had when she was uh, Rosalind's age. Um, so yeah, I think this is this was a really great performance, and I, I hadn't seen a lot of people talking about it, so I was surprised about how affected I was by her her role here. Okay, finally, let's talk about Sophie Okaneda who plays uh, Susanna, the posh uh, who Rosalind starts cleaning the house of, and you know, eventually they kind of form this friendship uh, that could also lead to Rosalind's career being furthered. What did you think of her performance, Scott?
1: Yeah, you know, I thought that this was just. I mean, of those three, you know, top performances in the movie, major performances in the movie. This is this is the weakest. It's it's a bit of a you, you get less from the character itself, obviously, because so much of the time and attention is put into Rosalind. You you get only so much from this character from Susanna, and I think I don't really have that many thoughts on it to be honest. I think that it made like the character made sense. You know, she's obviously a wealthy person who's interested in rose but i think what like probably the most interesting question there is like why she's interested in rose like she like to me the question that i have and i don't have an answer to this and i don't even know if, if the movie offers an answer to this but like why is she interested in helping Roselyn's career it, because, simply because she's her you know housekeeper her her you know someone helping her do do take care of her house is it because she really thinks that rose has a talent and a passion worth contributing to it, To me, I think that there's like a lot of questions on what the motivations of this character are, but this movie and understandably, so doesn't dive too deep into uh, understanding or explaining them. And I think you could say probably the same about, uh, although we won't talk to too much about him, but her, her husband as well, his role in the movie.
0: Yeah. Well, so I actually think there's a little bit more going on with this character. I think as far as her motivations, uh, we see that she's kind of going through a little bit of a midlife crisis, right? Like her husband is very distant. He's barely in the picture. Um, She's kind of alone in this big house left to care for the kids who, of course, are off at school a lot. And then there's this this one scene with her and Rosalind outside where she's smoking and uh, is talking to Rosalind about how, you know, back in the day, she and her husband, when they were first together, they threw these incredible parties and, um, you know, that they just had the the best times of their lives then. But now things are different. And I think in Rosalind, she sees not necessarily herself, but a life that. Uh, she wishes she could go back to for a short uh, amount of time, and so by latching onto her, you know, she's latching onto uh, the the youthful spirit of, uh, you know, her her yesteryear that she can't really return to, uh, but perhaps wishes that she could. So I I think there's a little bit more going on there. I don't think it's totally fleshed out, but like you said, I don't think it needs to be because this is you know, a tertiary character. But I do think there is some depth there, and I did like her relationship with. Rose Lynn. Although I will say, I think that I would have liked to see one more scene before the ending with this character. And I don't want to say too much. We can talk about when we get to the plot because it does. I would have to spoil, I guess, something uh, to talk about it. But I think there's just a little bit of a loose end with her character in the end. And I, I wanted one more scene sort of bridging the gap between a certain scene that happens and the final scene.
1: But I mean, we can go ahead and talk about. It. I, I don't like. Are there other characters you want to talk about? I mean, I thought we were about to start talking about the plot anyway, so you can go for it. I guess to. not.
0: I just think that. So to, we're getting into spoilers now. Um, I think that, spoilers. I think that obviously she has the birthday party, and this it's set up as Rosalind's big, big break, chance for her big break. All the money's going to go to her, furthering her career, getting her to Nashville, um, and then Rosalind, of course, can't go through with it because uh, she you know, can't live in the lie anymore that she's been telling to Susanna. And there's, you know, there's a scene where she confesses everything and runs away. And then we don't see the character again for the rest of the movie until the very final scene where she's singing um, at the club and, you know, everyone is there. Susanna and her children are there. And I guess I just wanted something, not even necessarily a scene between the two of them. Maybe it was a scene between Susanna and her husband, because like you said, he does play a role that is a little bit weird in my opinion. Something to explain how she got to the point where oh, she was okay with this, right? Like her or even what her feelings were at all about the fact, you know, that Rosalind had been lying to her and the fact that, you know, she, she had to have someone who had been in jail in her house with her children during the day. I just think it it's kind of left a mystery as to how she feels about it and how she eventually comes around to the point where she is in the club watching Rosalind sing and, and enjoying the performance you know, it's it's not a huge complaint, but I would have liked a little bit more follow through since I think they did set up the dynamic really well between the characters.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that it's totally an open question about what the circumstances under which, you know, Sophie and her family are there in, you know, in that club listening to that performance. Is it that they are back, you know, that they, you know, there was some exchange that's happened, obviously, between the two scenes that, you know, makes amends for Rosalind just kind of Wandering out of the out of the party that she was responsible for playing on and making you know making up there, or is it maybe they don't get along? Maybe they haven't made up. And Rosalind, just out of a courtesy for everything that she did for the career over the course of the movie, inviting her and deciding to bring her kids, who you know are vocal about how much they like Rosalind over the course of the movie and how much they enjoy her singing. You know, for me, uh, there's obviously not an answer to that question. We don't know the answer. There is a question of of whether we need to know the answer. But I I think I tend to fall in the in your camp here, there probably needed to be a little bit more development or a little bit less from the plot. It's like from this particular arc itself. Right. And less in terms of sense of, you know, I don't know if this is the scene that you were referring to that you said you really didn't like, but I really didn't like what they did with the husband, given how open ended that they left it. So if you were talking about the car scene where he drives Rosalind back to her place after Mm -hmm. a practice, or I can't remember exactly what it was she was doing uh, there to be honest, but that scene where he stops out of nowhere and just like, I know who you are, what you play this gig, make my wife happy, but then you're done and you can't come back and work or do anything with my family or be around my kids again. It just seemed so out of nowhere. Unfleshed out after the fact too, that I'm, I'm definitely in the same camp as you, if that's what you were referring to.
0: Yeah. It's weird for a couple of reasons, I think, because, First of all, his character is not set up in any way, right? That it really not set up in any way at all. Not only a way that would make this scene believable, but it's just it's, he's not really a factor in the movie. And so this scene really comes out of left field. And then it's kind of like rendered unnecessary by what happens afterwards. Because I think if the idea was that, oh, you know, this is kind of a guilt tripping Rosalind. This is going to be the thing which motivates her to finally tell Susanna about how she's been lying to her. I don't think that that really happens because the next scene or, you know, what happens next is of course that Lyle has to go to the hospital and there's this whole conflict because Rosalind might miss the birthday party, might miss her chance because she's at the hospital. And there's, you know, some very believable dramatic tension that comes up because, you know, I'm thinking the whole time, Oh, you know, she's going to have to tell Susanna why she's late. Well, you know, and then that's going to lead to the discussion about the kids and all of that. So I think you get that. Tension that arises just naturally, even without this scene. And then when she does tell Susanna, like, I don't know, I just don't feel like that scene with the husband really had anything to do with why she told Susanna ultimately. And it was just so it just was kind of unnecessary and weird, you know, because the character hadn't been set up in any particular way. But it's a small qualm again.
1: Yeah, it's a small qualm, but I mean, as I think, I can't remember, I think maybe it was David Ehrlich who recently said this, the better a movie is, the more there there are the small things to quibble about. And maybe this is one of those things. But that being said, this is, I'd probably categorize this as somewhere in the middle. This isn't that little of a thing in my book. This relationship with Susanna and that family is a critical part of of Rosalind's development over the course of the film. And there is some portion of that that feels undercooked, but it's not a big, it's not a big deal either. So I think I fall somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think because the rest of the movie is such such a high and they get so much right, it makes it seem more insignificant than maybe it actually is. But, sure. Um,
1: clearly, clearly, the movie was great and successful without this being fully baked. That being said, yeah. I still think it could have been better,
0: but that's most movies. So there you go. Yes, very true. Um, But to focus on the positive again, to circle back around to that ending, I think you know, I talked to top about how I think it's fantasy. I think I, maybe wish fulfillment would have been the the best way to describe it because I think it is a little a little bit of wish fulfillment here to you know get us a scene where we've skipped ahead a year and now she's obviously had some measure of success. You know, she's packed out this club that she's playing at. She has this great song that she's written, and everybody's there. Her family's there. Uh, Susanna and her kids are there. Um, and, you know, everything is great, but like I said, I think the movie earns it, and like I, I said earlier, I was worried about the, how they were gonna strike the right note at the end of balancing the the family obligations, and the the dream, you know, her following her dreams, um, and, how, you know, how, how are they gonna do justice to both of those ideas, and I think they do it perfectly, uh, and, you know, this scene establishes that. I really like what they did with her trip to Nashville, um, and the fact that, uh, you know, she she gets a great moment, she to ex, experience Nashville and and to perform to sing while she's on the tour of the Ryman Auditorium. But it feels right that she feels wrong about this um, because you know we get a couple of moments like the the lady at the the bar where Casey Musgraves is performing tells her like you know everybody here is trying to sing. You know, you're, you're not the only one, you know, it's, it's tough. It's a struggle. And then after she's, even after she sings at the Ryman, the guy comes outside and tells her, you know, yo, you'd be surprised how many people try to do that. So, you know, there's a sense that she's obviously not alone and that there are a lot of other people who are trying to reach the same goal as uh, her here. And it's, it's going to be very competitive. And I think, you know, what she realizes is that being from Glasgow, being Scottish, right, is something unique that she can cling to and something that she can hang her hat as an artist on. And that's really something that follows through on when she meets Bob Harris, the DJ from Radio 2. And that's kind of some of the stuff that he tells her, like, you know, she's like, I can't be a country singer from Glasgow. And he's like, well, why not? And I think so I think that the way that she comes to realize that, well, yeah, I can be a country singer from Glasgow. And actually, maybe the fact that I am from Glasgow is what will make me succeed. And, you know, make me a unique artist that I think that's absolutely the right uh, way to tie things up. Uh, and the fact that she's able to do this, she's able to succeed in her musical career. She's able to write this great song that touches on, uh, you know, what she's been through in her own life. Cause that's what country music's about. It's about real life. It's not about this crap that we hear in contemporary country music nowadays. And I think that's what I loved is that this movie reminded me that, yeah, I actually do love country music even though i can't really call myself a country music fan nowadays because of what is considered country music i do love country music and i think that this movie gets country music really right and they tie things up in a beautiful way so yeah it it was a very satisfying ending uh to a plot where i was a little bit on edge about whether they were going to be able to wrap things up neatly
1: yeah i think that, that that fear i think i shared that concern about whether or not they would be able to tie things up neatly cuz I feel like I see plenty of movies all the time that are really great for their first, you know, two acts, and then that third act things unravel a little bit because you don't really know quite how to uh, land the ship, so to speak. But this one does land it well. I will, I will say, one of my thoughts on the movie was I did think the plot was a little bit rushed towards the end of the movie. So, as much as I do think they still landed it well and got that emotional conclusion that I referenced earlier and that I was really satisfied with, I do think you know for the first two thirds of this movie it's very slow, methodical. They're really taking their time. And then it feels like, you know, at some point in the last half hour, the movie really accelerates. You get this, you know, this whole event around Lyle breaking his arm in the house and then going to the, you know, performance to play to the the band to play, you know, walking out of that, you know, becoming a better mom, going to Nashville, coming back, you know, deciding, you know, deciding while she's in Nashville that this is no longer the dream. Uh, that she wants to pursue no longer the the definition of success that she's l- giving for herself, you know, referencing that theme that I talked about at the beginning and then kind of redefining that based on her specific circumstances, you know, to your point, being from Scotland, having two kids, being an ex convict and making the most out of that situation and, and redefining success for herself there and going after that as much as it was a satisfying conclusion. I do think that the plot kind of speeds along and finds a, a different pace uh, in the last part of the movie, you know, kind of making for a little bit of awkward juxtaposition to the, You know, very methodical first, you know, half to two thirds of the movie. Again, relatively minor complaint there, but I did think the pacing might have been a little bit off, but because everything else is so good in this movie, it's hard to have too much of of a problem with that.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I didn't really think about the pacing that much. Maybe it is something that I would um, pick up on a a rewatch, but yeah, ultimately, I don't know that it's going to change my opinion uh, too much of the movie because yeah, uh, there's so many highs.
1: I agree. No, I I do. I do agree. But it is something that I thought about in the moment as it it went from like, you know, multiple minutes being spent on every day in in this woman's life uh, going into like all of a sudden, you know, not only do you skip a year, but you're skipping forward multiple weeks, you know, giving, you know, her mother giving her the money to go to Nashville for, you know, an indefinite amount of time just to figure out however however long it takes coming back. It, It just felt like things sped up. To a, to a degree that wasn't the case much earlier on in the movie. But,
0: again, it's a small quibble. Yeah, I think that that's, that's uh, probably accurate. Um, okay, Scott, I think we can uh, move into the wrap-up phase now for Wild Rose. Yep. Um, what was your favorite scene and moment from this movie?
1: You know, for me, I talked about at the beginning, there was some concern, you talked about as well, just some concern how they were going to wrap the movie up. And it's undeniable to me that that final scene in the club, her singing Glasgow, I mean, that, that was the moment. The moment of the film for me it's the part that made me tear up just hearing her how you know beautiful of a voice she has to start with but singing that particular song i mean part of the whole feeling up to that is that what, what was keeping her from being a star is that she you know even here at reference in the star's Born, she just didn't have anything to say right like she was a great singer she could sing other people's songs and she had the voice but she just didn't have something to say and she needed something to say to become famous we don't really see that aspect of the development of her over the course of the film that's going to be at some point in that one year fast forward phase that we get before before, from coming back from nashville to performing in that club but she found she found something to say and it was about the fact that she was from scotland uh, and what that means to her from a country music perspective and it was just a beautiful conclusion of the film and i i can't pick any scene except that one
0: yeah i think that that is the standout for me but um you know for the sake of being different I will say I love the way that uh, Susanna's kids discover that Rosalind is a great singer, um, which is that she's vacuuming the house um, and just absolutely jamming out to the country music that she's listening to singing. I'm moving on um, and practically using the the vacuum as a prop. uh, And, you know, she doesn't realize for a while that Susanna's kids have come in and that they're standing there watching her. Uh, and I, I thought that, that was a, uh, a lighter moment in the movie that worked really well. Rightfully so. All right, let's put a score on it, Scott. What would you give Wild Rose out of 10?
1: 8.9. I, I, there's a solid chunk of movies that are occupying my three to five spot so far in the year that I think they're all pretty interchangeable. I think right now this is landing at my number four. And it's, it's, very, it's a very worthy uh, contender there. You know, like I said, 8.9. It's a great score. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. And honestly, you know, if I had to recommend, you know, two or three movies that everyone should see from the first half of 2019, I think I'd pro- this would probably be one of them.
0: Yeah, it would definitely be one for me. And I think that while this movie, I don't like it as much as Midsommar um, in terms of, you know, my list or anything. You know, at the end of the day, in the years going forward, when we're talking about movies that I'm going to rewatch the most from 2019 – this may end up being the one just because, you know, for, for obvious reasons, it, it probably has a higher rewatch value than Midsommar does. But I think it's a wonderful movie. Like I said, almost flawless, a couple of minor things. Uh, and so I'm coming out a little bit higher a 9.6. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it,
1: it's a thoroughly enjoyable movie. I mean, you talked about like the movies that are the rewatchable value. I just looked at my actual my letterbox list and it is number five right now. But if I had to recommend three movies from, you know, up to this point in the year so far for everyone to see, it'd be this movie, Booksmart and Midsommar. Because, of course, Toy Story 4 and, you know, Ingame, John Wick 3, all amazing movies, all big blockbusters and have plenty of coverage. Uh, you know, if, if, if I had to recommend some smaller movies, this would easily be on the list.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think even though it is an indie, much like John Carney's films, it has a very, uh, you know, it has mass appeal on its mind. And I think that um, I can't imagine people, anyone who goes to see this movie is not going to love it or be Uh, you know, emotionally moved by what goes on in this movie, because while it may be an indie, while you may not have heard of anyone who's in the movie, uh, you know, it, it feels like it feels like once, you know, it feels like a Carney movie or, or something that really has resonated with a lot of people. So uh, I hope that people will seek it out. Absolutely. All right, Scott, well, that should do it for our review of wild rose. When we come back, we have a lot of uh, big news to get to. And also that new Mulan trailer uh to discuss. Uh, we'll get to all that right after the break.
2: Ain't no yellow break road running through Glasgow, but I found one that's stronger than stone.
0: Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It Scott. Scott, uh, a good amount of news to get to this week, and uh, we'll start out with Netflix news. Um, first of all, you know some of the biggest Netflix news ever. I guess technically, the N- Netflix has bought a film called Red Notice from Universal, and this is going to be their biggest budget movie, their most expensive movie yet. Um, and it is easy to see why when you uh, when you take a look at who they've got cast in this movie: Ryan Reynolds, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, uh, and Gal Gadot. Um, I think this is going to be an action action thriller type uh, movie, and they're, they're hoping to make a franchise out of this. Uh, they paid, I think, what were you saying, over $100 million for this? Yeah, the
1: budget, I think, is projected to be like $130 million right now. Yeah. Granted- you know, that doesn't, as always, that doesn't include marketing. Netflix has a little bit less marketing probably than all the other major studios because they're not generally releasing their movies in theaters. So that helps them out a little bit here. But I think by far the biggest budget for a Netflix film so far, I think yeah. big, even bigger than The Irishman coming out later this year.
0: Yeah. So um, what are your thoughts on this? Obviously, like I said, they probably want this to be a franchise starter. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested to see how uh, what seems to be a big sort of blockbuster style movie will play on a small scale format like Netflix. um yeah. What are your takes? You know, i you know they tried their probably first
1: attempt at doing something like this was with something like Bright, right, with Will Smith in the in the lead role. That you know kind of was lack it had I think it was lackluster compared to what their expectations were for it in terms of probably not necessarily the pe- number of people who viewed it, but you know how it was received by people who viewed it, because I'm sure they wanted that to be a franchise starter. And you know there may still be a sequel to Bright that comes out eventually, but I don't think that it's quite at the level that they were hoping for, and that their investment um, was driven by. And this one, you know, you have more than just Will Smith. You have The Rock, who's probably the hottest actor in Hollywood right now. You have Ryan Reynolds, and you have Gal Gadot. All three of whom could shoulder a franchise on their own. You put those three of those people together. You know, you give them a director like Ross and Marshall Thurber, who has been – has a good relationship with The Rock, having directed him in Central Intelligence, and Skyscraper, which was a pretty successful summer blockbuster from last year, even though I don't think either of us saw it and we didn't ever talk about it on the podcast. But I think that this, this is a good sign for Netflix in terms of a franchise starter. You know, I have some questions. sounds like similar to what you're having with whether or not a blockbuster franchise like this can really play out and be as successful on Netflix as you see, like the equivalent of something like the MCU, uh, or I think probably a more appropriate equivalent, something like a Bond or a Mission Impossible or a Kingsman franchise. I, I don't know if that will play out as well on a streaming service as it would in the theater, but I think you can you know bet big that people are definitely going to want to watch this movie on Netflix when it does come out. You know whether it's next year, whether it's the year after. And I think it is a big bet for Netflix, but they don't have really a big franchise yet, and they really want that. They they want to be providing content for, on all sides. you I mean, like, you know, we talk about how they've carved out the rom com niche. You know, they've started to try to you know dip their toe in into horror, uh, you know, sometimes as well. And I think they just want to continue to fill out the genres, and you know, they're picking. you know, a whole host of people who can shoulder a franchise, they're picking a director who one of their major stars already has a good relationship with. And, you know, audiences are enjoying those movies, even if they're not like critically received the same as, you know, an Oscar worthy movie, etc. And so there's a lot of potential. And you know, you mentioned this being an action, you know, kind of an action thriller franchise movie, the the, the film is kind of being, you know, touted as a global action heist movie where these people are trying to, you know, I think, I, I, I don't know exactly if the roles are are released yet or defined explicitly but essentially you know some combination of these characters trying to stop uh, a global art thief from committing his next crime or her next crime whoever that ends up being not sure yet but it, you know it, it has all the chops you know it has the the acting it has the you know appeal from a story perspective if they can you know actually execute on that now create a good movie first and foremost and you know, not only get people to watch the movie, but, you know, say they enjoyed it, say it's a good movie and then kickstart their franchise. You know, that's going to be the ultimate goal. And we're just going to have to wait to see about that.
0: Yes, we are. Uh, and something else we're going to have to wait and see about from Netflix is the latest film from David Fincher. Of course, Fincher has already been involved with Netflix a little bit, working on the, the, their uh, television series Mindhunter. Uh, but now we learn that his next film is going to be a Netflix biopic called Mank. Uh, starring Gary Oldman, and it's going to be the story of the writer of Citizen Kane, the quote-unquote greatest film of all time. Scott Fincher is one of my favorite directors. Uh, is he one of yours? Does this get you excited?
1: You know, I, I don't know if I have the ability to say he's one of my favorite directors. I just don't think I've seen an, enough of his stuff. But, when you know, whenever I see something that says, you know, David Fincher directing – it grabs my attention because I do like him. I do enjoy the movies that I've seen by him. I enjoy the things that he's created that I've watched, right? I haven't seen Mindhunter, but having seen enough of other David Fincher projects to know that what we're going to get is something definitely worth watching. I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry if I missed this when you were saying it, but the fact that this is also going to be black and white. I think that this is mm-hmm. you know, genre content coming from Netflix. And, uh, you know, we just talked about how they're trying to fill out different genres. They don't have too many biopics right now, but you know, they're going to get a good one from David Fincher Gary Oldman, or I should say they at least have the ingredients to make a good one. And so, again, just trying to further establish themselves across, you know, a wide breadth of, of genres, of, of content, of of people looking for different kinds of things from their service as, you know, competition heats up in the streaming space, which we're going to talk about a, a little bit later on today in the news section.
0: Yeah, no, I'm really interested to see what Fincher can do with this. Obviously, this is going to be his first movie since Gone Girl, which was all the way back in 2015. And he's already shown that he has a lot of skill in directing biopics uh, with something like The Social Network. So I think this yep. could be another uh, interesting movie. Obviously, this one is a, a lot less zeitgeisty than The Social Network, given uh, when it is set. Um, but uh, I, you know, he's one of those directors where his movies are, are pretty much events for me at this point. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to be there. Well, I guess I won't be at the theater, but I'll be there in front of my computer when it drops uh, to check it out.
1: You know, I also, you know, you say that, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if this is something that does get a release similar to that of Roma, maybe something Mm -hmm. like The Irishman, because I don't know if it has a release date yet, but I will be floored if this does not get a
0: fall winter release to give it Oscar consideration. Especially with a big name director like Fincher attached. um, I think that would be a missed opportunity if they didn't, didn't give it some sort of a theatrical run.
1: Yeah, and should say just noting Gary Oldman too. I mean, yeah. o- obviously in the conversation for the last uh, I guess 2 years ago now winning that Oscar for best actor, but you know, he's doing a lot more with Netflix himself. He I know I don't think this movie's out yet, but he just I know he just shot a Steven Soderbergh movie with for Netflix called The Laundromat, which is about the Panama Papers leak and that's going to ha- that also has Meryl Streep and Antonio Banderas. So, you know, he's doing these, you know, landmark Projects with Netflix. So he's another one that, you know, Netflix is leveraging hard for his talents to, you know, g- catapult them into Oscar consideration more and more, kind of with the start of that being with Roma last
0: year. Yeah, understandably so. He's a great actor. Um, okay, Scott, looking at some other streaming news, uh, HBO Max, another new streaming service, uh, was announced this week. S- some things that will get people excited uh, are the fact that this is going to have some. World Series on it, like Friends, which of course is leaving Netflix, uh, Fresh Prince of Bel Air, uh, plenty of other favorites. I think The Office is going to be on this as well. Um, you know, pl- plenty of the the shows that people rewatch an insane amount of times for no particular reason, in my opinion. But this is where they're going to be able to get a lot of those shows. Uh, but along with those shows, they're going to get some interesting original content. Uh, as well, Scott, uh, there's a new show called Lovecraft Country that's coming out. That's sort of a sci-fi series with Elizabeth Debicki in it. Uh, we're going to get Station Eleven, which is a uh, adaptation of a, a big blockbuster novel from a few years ago. Um, and the Dune series, I believe as well, that uh, Denis Villeneuve is going to be working on is also going to be on this uh, streaming service. So, you know, obviously the streaming market get, getting more competitive by the week um, and, The amount of money which uh, I have to devote to these streaming services is getting uh, a lot less by the week. But I I have to say, this is one that piques my interest just because of that original content.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's also pretty compelling. And this is what I was talking about. And I think the thing that's really going to help it is it has one the HBO branding, right? Like this is HBO max. It is going to be Warner brother streaming service, but it's hard to forget that like, you know, you list all, you know, we listed off those, the content that it's going to be getting kind of pulling it from Netflix. In the case of friends, pulling it from other places for pretty little liars, fresh Prince, Bel Air, the, you know, if it's the, if the office, I think that that might be right. I can't remember right off the top of my head if, if the office is a part of that or not, but that sounds right. That's not what drives me to a streaming service at this point. I'm looking for that original content that you're describing. And when it comes to original content, you know, HBO is probably second, you know, if it's second, it's second only to Netflix. And so HBO behind this HBO Max service is a huge thing for that, especially because we understand that this is going to be one of the pricier streaming services. I mean, Netflix keep has gone up on its price recently and has become pricier, but it's, you know, rumored to be in like the upper teens in terms of its pricing per month. So like 17, $18 is what we're expecting to see. That's not confirmed yet, but if if that's so, that would make it the most expensive streaming service we have. You know that's an example of you only have to pay in some cases two or three dollars more mm-hmm. a month to be getting that content. And I think that's going to be compelling for those people. Now, if you don't have HBO already, you know it's a it's a steep price tag to look at that and see all right, seventeen or eighteen dollars for this. I mean, personally, I'm a huge fan of HBO. I think HBO is you know in terms of quality over quantity, the best probably the best platform that there is for that. Um, you know, again, rivaled only by Netflix, and and for me, I just think it's a really interesting play because they're going to need to and doing the right thing here, leveraging that HBO branding and trying to essentially convert members of the HBO platform to the HBO Max platform, charging people, like I said, two, three dollars more, maybe seven or eight dollars more, depending on which plan that you're on, uh, for that full platform service, and you're getting a lot for that, right? Like we talk about someone like an Apple TV, plus, you know, Apple TV Plus or a Disney Plus not being able to compete, and even Amazon True. Too as well not being able to compete with Netflix on volume of content but the fact that they have that you know that base of HBO i think that the DC universe streaming network might be included on this as well getting things like friends pretty little liars uh fresh prince if it's the if the office is in there too it's one of those things where like all right well all of a sudden no you don't have as much content as Netflix probably but you've got a lot more content than you know everyone else putting you kind of in a comfortable second place for original and and licensed content on the platform and so it's a pretty compelling argument but the price is going to be high for it
0: it is but like i think most people will be upgrading from hbo go to your point just because hbo has become such a huge name and they've been able to maintain uh their role even as the streaming services have uh, risen up uh, the, as producing some of the best tv on best content on television i mean i think that along with netflix like you said um there's nobody who's making shows like hbo and uh you know, having the entire back catalog of every single show HBO has ever done, along with a lot of exclusive movies, is going to draw people because the the big event TV shows of our generation, a lot of them have been HBO. Game of Thrones, of course, most recently, Big Little Lies to a little bit of a lesser extent. But, you know, even something like Westworld is these are the kind of shows that pe- get people talking on social media. Uh, and so I think m- for most people, this isn't going to be too much of an upgrade. And like you said, when you throw in that uh, other original content, yeah, I'm definitely intrigued by
1: this. It's it's interesting, right? We'll we'll see. I'm not. I don't think I'm as convinced as you are about the upgrade and about the, you know, the getting the people onto that platform. There will definitely be people who will, but I'm just maybe not convinced that everyone will be will be upgrading mm-hmm. to that because you know if you have HBO Go, that's only ten dollars a month. Like that's you're essentially buying a new streaming service at that point. You know, seven or eight dollars a month. That's going to be. More than the cost of Disney Plus, is our understanding. So, you know, it, it, that is significant. If you're on HBO now, it seems much more straightforward. You're, you know, you're paying two or three dollars to upgrade. So that's a little bit less of a yeah. difference. But you know, to your point about event, event TV shows and event content, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's because HBO is one of the few streaming platforms at this point. I mean, technically they're not a streaming platform, I guess, but like HBO is a network that also has a strong streaming presence. Is one of the only. Uh, places that still serializes the release of their major TV shows, right? Like I would, you know, I would argue that stranger things would be more as much as it is an event content or event release, you know, there are people talking about it. It's not the same when it's dropped all at the same time and not dropped one episode per week, you know, building up the hype, giving people something to talk about, you know, every week for 10 weeks, you know, whatever, however many episodes, a given season of a certain show might be. But for me, that thing, that's what drives the conversation around HBS content because they, you know, they have decided to, Stay true to you know the history of of TV shows and release them one episodes per week still and not dropping them all at the same time like Netflix and so in some ways Netflix hurts themselves by doing that relative to HBO and HBO builds a lot of hype for a lot of their shows you know great shows by the way it's not just the fact that they're releasing them one episode a week is what gets people talking about them they're fantastic content but they're doing themselves a favor by maintaining their relevancy through you know and they're being helped by that
0: I think yeah I think that's a good point that they've basically captured like the feeling of how how watching television was in like the golden age of TV of like everyone is sitting watching the same show at the same time uh, every every night, you know, and you talk about uh, around the water cooler the next day. Like, I think that they've managed to translate that to the uh, streaming era by, you know, Like you said, not just serializing the release of the shows, but like by saying, "Okay, we're dropping the new episode of Game of Thrones at 9 p.m. Right. And everyone watches along like right after it drops and is tweeting along and everything. So you get that sort of community um, aspect of everyone is watching the same show at the same time. But you're streaming it right. You're watching it on your computer. And so I think they've done that really well.
1: I agree. I personally actually wish that Netflix would do not, they don't. I mean, obviously, not every show like that, but I wish they would do some of their event shows like that because I think yeah. it only helps the content itself. But you know, they're clearly being successful. They don't need to listen to me.
0: All right. Speaking of other streaming services, Scott Quibi. This is the streaming service from uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the former chairman of Disney, is getting some new content announcements as well um, this week. Uh, I guess the the standouts here include some sort of remake of The Fugitive, which. I, I'm really struggling after reading about this to see how how it is related to the fugitive, other than in name only. Uh, but it is going to be called the fugitive. I believe a Peter Farrelly comedy series, and I guess maybe one of the most intriguing is a superhero series from Doug Liman. Um, Scott, you know, we just talked about the the market for streaming services. Here's another one. Here's some new original content for it. What's what's your temperature on this one?
1: Yeah, I also realize that you know Qu- Quibi has been something that we've been that's kind of been in the background of a lot of our conversations for a long time on the podcast, but I don't think we've actually ever specifically talked about it. And so, just to give our listeners who may be less familiar a little bit of background, this you know you talked about this being from Jeffrey Katzenberger, former uh, Disney chair or CEO, I forget exactly the title that he had over there but you know this is coming and there's a ton of investors a lot of different companies are getting behind this but the the hook for this is that this is not just another streaming platform this is a short form uh content streaming service it's so like to be, so like they are attacking something that's much more bite sized like my understanding even like shorter than 20 minutes episodes the idea is that like you can pull out your phone in in like You know, some free time that you have and watch an episode of something. And so this is really trying to attack a part of the market and a type of consumer that's very different than something like a Netflix, like a Disney Plus, like an eight, you know, like an HBO go like a Hulu, like they're, they're hitting, or, or at least marketing a very different use case for a streaming service. And like that, it's coming. So when we make all these announcements, like these are not, you know, major TV show long, like long form TV show releases. When you talk about a, something being made over here, you're talking about like five to 10 to 15 minute episodes at the longest is my understanding. And so really something different coming from this platform. And, you know, again, we talk about whether or not something can be additive and to to other streaming services out there, right? You know, this feels something like if you had to make different buckets you might have netflix for your your volume original content your disney plus for your i guess like very specific um licensed licensed original disney uh etc et content but then you might have quibi for something like okay you know what, i've got 15 minutes to or 10 minutes to burn right now you know i'll pay five dollars a month because that's what the, that's what it's going to cost um i think that's with ads eight dollars without it or for, you know, ad-free experience. Uh, and that's going to be something that's much more bite-sized, much more digestible. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk kind of outside of our podcast, I should say, like in in other, when the, in these conversations about platforms like like Quibi, where you're trying to get people who are used to watching Instagram stories, right? Like, granted, mm-hmm. that's like the, you know, the, the far end of the spectrum in terms of, you know, bite-sized content, right? When you're looking at 10, 15, 20-second videos. But it's trying to tap into that part of the market more so than your Netflix that's producing, you know, 40 minutes to an hour long episodes most of the time. And so I think from that sense this is a really interesting uh <laughs> offering in the market and you know it seems like this past week we got about 20 different content announcements. There's so many coming out. It's super interesting. I think that it might be one of those things where I you know this is launching in April of next year, I think, so it's not mm-hmm. that far off. And I think it's interesting enough that I might, you know, wait a couple of months to get some more content on the platform, try it out for a month or two, see if this like really bite-sized content is appealing and compelling to me, and see what other people are saying as well. And if I like it, I will stick with it because, again, I do find this is the type of service that is additive to a lot of other services that you're getting because you're getting completely different types of content. You're getting a very t- like a very concentrated niche type of content in terms of like you're getting these you know five ten minute episodes of things that might stream into a longer series or whatever it might be. We don't know. But I think, from that sense, it's doing something that no other streaming service is doing. It's doing something very different, uh, and it will be interesting to see if it's successful. But clearly, people in Hollywood, people in the business side of Hollywood, especially, think that this is going to be a very compelling offering based on the amount of of funding and backing and ad advertisement revenue that they've already started to generate on this platform.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if this could almost do like for the for the original TV market, like what podcasts almost do, sort of for 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 the audio market, and the fact that you know people listen to podcast to get their news people listen to podcasts for sports they listen to podcasts for basically whatever they want uh you know it's replaced things like reading the newspaper or even scrolling through twitter and i wonder if something like this can fulfill people who want to watch tv want to you know be in the loop uh you know like like people who watch like the people who watch game of thrones and talk about game of thrones obviously you know tv is big nowadays but simply do not have the time to commit to watching something like a Game of Thrones or Big Little Lies, uh, because obviously time commitment is a huge, huge thing when you're talking about TV. Because you, you know, there's a certain uh, window in which you have to watch it before it really just doesn't become relevant any, uh, anymore. And so I wonder if this is going to be sort of an outlet for people like that.
1: Yeah, it's going to be really interesting because you know I was just reading I was reading an article about it earlier today because I knew we were going to talk about it. And one thing that I didn't mention that I meant to mention is that this is going to be designed exclusively for mobile devices again so like not something that's like you know designed for you know specifically for mobile but like exclusively for mobile. like you will not be able to watch this yeah. on your tv unless you of course you cast it maybe from your smartphone to your tv that's one way to do it but like there's not going to be an app on your apple tv to stream this content is our understanding and i think that's super interesting and just to follow up with something because i was just doing a little bit of googling here uh the the quote from katzenberg is that that quibi quibi video series are designed to essentially be Two-hour series is in like seven to ten-minute like chapters, uh, so short, bite-sized chapters that play not out sure. what what essentially uh, you know equate to a, a full-length movie. As interesting as this is, the, the reason why I'm hesitant to like fully commit to this and be you know say that I'm definitely going to be there on day one, see what it's like, because honestly, I don't know if I want to consume you know TV in seven to ten-minute chunks. You know, I you know I don't know how much I've talked about this on the podcast podcast, but I know it comes up you know not infrequently just uh, offside the, outside the podcast, that, you know, I'm someone who really doesn't like starting and pausing movies in the middle and like watching the rest the next day. I'm, I'm very anti that form of um, media consumption. And so it'll be interesting to see how I feel about the se- these seven to ten minute chapters or episodes of, of, a, of a video series when I prefer to consume my media in kind of a longer form.
0: Indeed. OK, Scott, um, let's talk about what's going on at Disney Plus, which uh, we learned this week that uh, Derek Kolstad, who's one of the writers for the John Wick series, um, is going to be writing for the Falcon and Winter Soldier series over at Disney+. Plus. I imagine this is something that gets you excited.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's cool. I mean, we've talked at length, you know, this this season <laughs> that uh, John Wick is has catapulted itself up into the echelons of action franchises of the likes of James Bond, of Mission Impossible. And so to see that someone like Derek Colstadt is going to be I don't know if he's going to be leading the writing over there for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier or if he's just going to be contributing. Regardless, he's a great talent to have in that writer's room for Disney Plus, And it, it definitely makes me more excited and uh, a higher level of anticipation for that series, because, you know, it's not that I wasn't excited about it before, but this definitely took it to a new level.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm definitely in agreement there. Um, I, I was going to be watching this either way, but it's good to know that you have people like this attached. Okay, Scott, a lot of casting news this week, some, some big stuff in Fast and Furious franchise, James Bond, Saw, Space Jam. What of the casting news that we got this week, what are one or two items that stand out to you?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the big two that stand out to me are are going to be Fast and Furious Nine, which granted, I've, I think I've talked openly on the podcast about. I guess, I haven't seen any of those movies beyond like Too Fast, Too Furious. I think so. I have a lot of catching up to do. But the fact that we heard that Charlize Theron and Helen Mirren will be returning for Fast and Furious Nine, I think is huge because it's often been a franchise. Granted, my I'm a little bit biased toward the first two movies here, but it's often been a franchise with pretty weak uh, female roles. And so I think to have some to to know that Charlize Theron. Uh, the villain from um, Fate of the Furious, I believe. And then Helen Mirren as well are coming back. I think that's a great sign. I love Charlize Theron. I think she was amazing in the long shot earlier this year. And the fact that we know she's going to be coming back for this new movie, I think is awesome news, and I'm really excited about that. And then the second one, in terms of returning casting news here, so there's some similarities. But for Bond 25, we heard this week that Christoph Waltz is going to be coming back for to play to reprise his role as Blofeld in Bond 25, which was rumored for a while that people were like skeptical about like weird that he would be coming back. But turns out he is going to be coming back. It's unclear exactly what type of role or or how much of a role he'll be playing in the movie. We've heard it kind of compared to I don't know if this is just musings or if actual rumor. But we I've heard that it's being kind of compared to something like a Hannibal Lecter kind of role, you know, getting, you know, being brought in sort of as a consult. But I wonder if that then is, a, is a, you know, a bridge to his role expanding and becoming, you know, returning as the big bad of the movie. And I, I don't know which I prefer. I think I might have just preferred them to like kind of scrap Blofeld altogether based on kind of the way they, they played it in Spectre to uh, middling results, I think it's fair to say. But I mean, Christoph Waltz is an incredible actor. So, you know, if they're giving him another chance to do Blofeld and maybe they'll do it right this time, I guess that's OK. But I'm also surprised that they're bringing him back.
0: Yeah, with respect to the Fast and the Furious news, I think, you know, you mentioned that they've had some issues with female characters in the past, and that makes me wonder, too, whether Vanessa Kirby is going to be in addition as well. We know she's going to be in Hobbs and Shaw playing uh, Shaw's sister, um, and so you wonder if maybe we'll see her in this new entry as well, uh, depending on what happens in Hobbs and Shaw. But, yeah, I think a good casting either way to keep the two of uh, these uh, very, very accomplished actresses around. Scott, one other... Um, Casting item, which I'll highlight. Uh, of course, we've talked a little bit about the Dark Universe um, and the colossal failure that it has been to this point. Um, but, you know, the, the people at Universal are, are determined to forage on with this, and we will be getting that Invisible Man movie. And we learned that, that uh, Oliver Jackson Cohen, someone who doesn't seem to have a lot of major roles on his, uh, on his filmography at this point, Um, is going to be replacing Johnny Depp uh, and and starring alongside Elizabeth Moss in this movie. Interesting casting, like I said, because he doesn't have a lot of major roles. Um, you know, I guess he could go down two ways of maybe this was uh, the only person they could, they could get at this point um, (laughs) with, with uh, where this uh, universe has gone, or maybe, you know, they just saw something in him that, uh, you know, really embodied this character that they weren't uh, expecting. And maybe this could be a real breakthrough for him. Uh, that's probably an optimistic way of looking at it, but you know, it, it's still still interesting to see that they are they're foraging on with this.
1: Yeah, you know, they're they're really taking maybe the DC approach after the failure that the Mummy was of trying to just slow things down, take it movie by movie, make good movies first, and then worry about the universe second. But yeah, they they found their replacement for Johnny Depp. They, I mean, clearly saw something in him in The Haunting of Hill House, which is the only major thing that I that he's done, I think. And that makes sense, right? They're trying to go for that more horror element uh, probably in the Haunting of Hill House is that, you know, I was referencing Netflix horror content earlier. That's granted. That's not a movie. It's a series, but that is their, you know, that's their genre content for that department. And he was, I mean, I haven't seen it, but I my understanding is that he was well received in that role. So it makes sense. Uh, But, you know, they're betting on someone who's a relative unknown, especially for something that's going to be, you know, debuting in the theater.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, Okay, Scott, final bit of news before we get to that uh, Mulan trailer. We learned this week that Dexter Fletcher of Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocketman fame is going to be del- uh, taking over for Guy Ritchie and directing the next entry in the Sherlock Holmes series. Scott, not one of my favorite franchises, not one of my favorite directors. Can't say I'm too excited about this, but uh, anything, uh, any feelings which you have to add? I'm, I'm kind of shocked, honestly.
1: I mean, it may, it may not be one of your favorite franchises, but I loved the first. I mean. I was a kid, right? But like, I loved the first Sherlock Holmes movie with Robert Downey Jr. I thought it was really cool. I totally get the complaints. I'm sure if I, you know, if it came out today and I was supposed to critically analyze it, it probably wouldn't. Love it that much, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I think the second one was a bit of a letdown, even for childhood version of me. But then to stay, you know, to take a series that's been directed by Guy Ritchie, the flair of Guy Ritchie, and then have Dexter Fletcher come in, who admittedly has a lot of flair himself. Right? Like yeah. we saw it in Rocket Man, especially that you know kind of directorial flair and narrative flair that he adds to the way that he does things. But it is, I mean, I don't know how you replace Guy Ritchie's style in this franchise. And maybe that means they're trying to go for a different direction than Guy Ritchie style for this third movie. But honestly, Guy Ritchie style is what made this, this adaptation of Sherlock Holmes like so interesting and popular. I feel like, right? Like it's not just that Robert Downey Jr. And Jude law are in the movie. It's the fact that it's Guy Ritchie directing, even if he's not a name that, you know, like when you go to the movie and you watch the movie, like you're like, Oh, this is a particular kind of style. And so I don't, I mean, I, I don't even know which I hope more. I, I don't know if I hope that Dexter Fletcher doesn't try to emulate Guy Ritchie style, or uh, guy, you know Dexter Fletcher does his own style. Because honestly, both options don't sound that appealing to me. So I'm very curious if this deal will actually go through. It. I've heard that it's it's in late stages of talks. Right? I don't think it's like fully officially inked yet. But this is very very interesting directorial news for from my perspective.
0: Yeah, and it's been a while since Game of Shadows came out, so I yeah. just wonder what sort of. You know what? What is the feeling towards this franchise right now? Uh, in in our in the culture, I, I mean, I guess Robert Downey Jr. will probably get people to the theater, but I just don't know H- how much uh, hope I have for this. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I think not just Robert Downey Jr., but like Sherlock Holmes will get people to the theater, yeah. right? Like it, it will. I, I you know whether this particular franchise is particularly hot right now, I mean, probably not, right? But but it's still Sherlock Holmes. It's still Robert Downey Jr. I mean, people. I mean, I love Jude Law. I would go see it just with Jude Law in it. But you know, I understand that Robert Downey Jr. has a different a different level of appeal, maybe than Jude Law does. But yeah, it's interesting because I mean, I just don't know what to, I don't know what they're going to do with this film. I mean, maybe this film will just never happen. I mean, it's been long rumored, but you know, obviously hasn't hasn't come up, come up come to fruition yet. So maybe it just never will. And yeah, again, I just don't know what this movie is going to look like when it does if it does come out.
0: Yeah, it does have the Sherlock Holmes name. I don't know that I would say that it is Sherlock Holmes, uh, just because there's there's a little bit of a. They're a little bit liberal with the authenticity, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the name probably yeah. alone is enough to uh, attract people.
1: I mean, it's it, – you talk about liberal with the authenticity, but like, that's Guy Ritchie for you, so – Yes,
0: certainly. What are you going to do? Uh, and spe- talking of Guy Ritchie segues us nicely to talk about our uh, our one trailer for this episode, Scott. Uh, Guy Ritchie, of course, directed a Disney remake this year, and we got a trailer for another Disney live-action remake that is going to be coming out next year. Scott, this is one of my most anticipated remakes uh, because it is one of my favorite animated movies, period, not just Disney. Um, and that is Mulan. Uh, a lot of talk about this trailer on the internet this week, Scott. Uh, of course, the some of the major takeaways from the trailer is that it looks like it's going to be more of a martial arts style, c- crouching tiger, hidden dragon type movie. And there, at least, you know, the, we heard the rumors about this and it. it Appears to be confirmed from the first trailer that we will not be having any songs, any of the songs from the original movie in this movie. And also Mushu, of course, the uh, dragon sidekick to Mulan, who was voiced by Eddie Murphy. Also not going to be uh, a character in what appears to be a, a much more serious take on the Mulan story. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Scott?
1: Yeah, I think not having the songs is is a bit of a disappointment from you know, my perspective, at least I do hear that they're going to have the like basically the instrumental versions of the songs essentially as going to be like part of the soundtrack or the score. So I think that's like an interesting way to integrate that. And you obviously will be able to sing along in your head as you hear the music, if that is the case, which I think is interesting. But they're definitely doing I mean, Scott, it, I know that I know what you're going to say in, in a second because we've talked about off air. But I'm just going to say for all the people who are asking them, asking Disney to do something different with these live action remakes. They're doing something different with this live action remake. They're not going to have songs and they're not going to have Mushu and they're going to make this a very serious uh, what appears to be like a very serious drama oriented tale of, you know, a woman disguising herself as a man fighting in war and, you know, essentially saving her country, right? And I think that if you if you just put it on the screen without a title and you laid that out, people would be like, "Oh, that reminds me of Mulan." Um, and that's because it's a really interesting, good story, compelling story, Scott. And we'll see if they do, may, do make some narrative changes. Obviously, we'll have to wait to see about that. But for me, it's interesting. I'm not super, super excited about this yet uh, because this really was only just a teaser for what's to come. But right, not having the music is going to be different. And will the other changes that they make uh, and the narrative of the story justify taking out what, a, what for many will be probably their favorite parts of Mulan?
0: I understand like and this I I have been a little bit bought, uh, annoyed by the criticism of people like oh you're y'all are such hypocrites right you say you want different Disney remakes but then we get it, something different and um and you know you're complaining but I just don't know how, if this is how true this is going to be the spirit of Mulan without without the songs without Mushu without you know a lot of what made the original so special and I mean yes we want them to do something different but not at the expense of uh you know eschewing everything that we loved about the original movie. And I'm not saying that everything is going to be gone, but I just wonder, um, you know, how faithful this is going to be to the original because, you know, it's definitely taking on a different tone. Yeah. I mean, I I just don't know how much like politics plays a role in this because I think the original Mulan is a really great, like feminist tale. And one of the most progressive Disney movies um, to come out of that animated movie era. So I don't know if they're trying to make and even more sort of take charge heroin with this Mulan, like we saw with with what they did with Jasmine and Aladdin, which I thought they did a fine job with Jasmine here. But if I mean, I just don't know if that's going into it at all. But if it is, I just don't feel like they really need that. Uh, I don't think I don't think we need Mulan being this like somber warrior because yeah, I the, think cyn- that-
1: the cynical take on it. The cynical take on it is that what they're doing is a design just to make sure they get the movie to actually show in China.
0: Mm, interesting yeah i mean i i don't know about that uh i i I don't know that i know enough to comment about that but like well because
1: the the original mulan didn't they wouldn't show it in china yeah um but so so what are they thinking about this new one that is going to make them show it in china no i I don't know but i assume all the decision making they're making on this movie is just to make sure they can make you know a couple hundred million dollars in china but uh, again that's, that's a super cynical perspective on it
0: yeah, if that is true that obviously frustrates me more because that just validates the idea that this is a cash grab, but I don't know, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I it, it's still very early and I don't uh I don't want to overreact before seeing more and of course before seeing the movie.
1: You know, I, I and to be fair, I think it's you know, even if it's even if that is an element of it making sure that it does play in China, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, whether it changes your narrative vision and what you do with the film if that is affected by you're doing that then maybe you can have some qualms with that but as as things most often are i think it's probably a little bit more nuanced than you know entirely one way or the other um and you know at the same time yes it doesn't necessarily feel too right that you know maybe they would change the way they're making a movie or adapt a movie based on it being able to play in a market but at the end of the day like for these types of films to be financially feasible like you need to enter what is definitely like the second if not the largest market for movies in the world and that is china and so if they have to do certain things to make sure it gets shown in china I understand that even if obviously I wish their narrative uh, freedom was a hundred percent.
0: Yes. I suppose you are right from a business perspective, Scott. Um, and, and with that, I think uh, that concludes today's episode of some like it, Scott, um, Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? You could find me at, at Shelton,
1: two zero one three. I'm trying to tweet a little bit more. Sometimes I'm successful. Sometimes I'm not, but there you go.
2: <laughs>
0: I have noticed you have been making an effort. Um, so good job. Uh, <laughs> And, and you can find me at Scarby Dent, still tweeting a lot more than Scott does. Um, if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support our podcast, please don't forget about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Uh, there you can support all of our great content uh, and support us as we continue to grow our listener base. But, but if you choose not to support us on Patreon, uh, that is okay, too. We would still love it if you uh, rated, reviewed, subscribed, do all the things here on Apple Podcasts that you do. Um, and we hope you will be. Uh, you, we hope you will be back for our next episode, on which we will be reviewing another Div's Knee live-action remake. This time, it's Jon Favreau's version of The Lion King. But until then, I'm Scott Harvey for Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. You can definitely count on that one
1: being authentic to the original. See you guys.
2: Country girl, pick my.